Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Energy News Beat podcast. My name's Stu Turley, President and CEO of the Sandstone Group. Man, we've got another big show coming up for you. This is Megan Lapp. She is a an incredible resource for the marine life and for everything going on on the East Coast with wind farms, marine life, whales, regulatory issues for the fishing industry. What a resource. She's testified in front of Congress. She's been on Fox. She's been on all of these other news outlets. She is leading the charge trying to save mariners' lives. She's trying to help get the word out. So stay tuned and uh, listen to Megan. She is just a wealth of information. Before we do that, subscribe, like, share, tell your friends, tell your kids, tell your dogs. We are so happy with the success of the show. We just want to thank everybody that's having a great time listening. Uh, we've had wonderful guests like Doomberg. Uh, we have Dr. Patrick Moore coming up for the second podcast. It is crazy wild how how much he knows uh, about taking care of the environment, uh, where we are with energy. We've got another one coming up with uh, Craig Rucker. He is the president over at CFAC. He was out protesting the whale deaths, and I mean, it is a fantastic organization. We have Betsy McCoy. She is a uh, attorney, a constitutional attorney, and she is absolutely so knowledgeable on regulatory issues issues and things that are going on right in the energy space and what needs to happen. So with that, buckle up, hang on. And uh, we are going to have also not only Megan, she's provided us with documentary uh, evidence on how the wind farm is actually killing marine life. There is a cause and effect to wind farms and whale deaths, but it's being buried by the main street. And look forward to hearing your feedback. Ask us questions. Thanks. Well, Megan, you know, I've, I have been talking to uh, a lot of folks about this uh, wind energy hypocrisy and the lack of involvement from the quote unquote green environmentalists. I had the pleasure of uh, interviewing now twice Patrick Moore and um, also, uh, oh, I got to think of his name, but we are releasing it real quick, too. And he was out there protesting uh, all the deaths and everything on the uh, East Coast. Uh, you're with Seafreeze. Tell us a little bit about what you've got going on, because you're in the middle of the dogfight for the fishing industry. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I'm the fisheries liaison for Seafreeze. My job is to represent Seafreeze at the regulatory level. So I deal with fisheries management, which is actually more regulated than oil and gas extraction, if you can imagine that in this country. Wow. We have a lot of, you know, mazes of regulations. Um, a lot of them are spatial. There are quota things, you know, environmental restrictions, all kinds of stuff. But because of that, you know, U.S. fisheries are the most sustainable in the world. So I deal with two federal fisheries management councils. Each species has its own set of regulations, its own fisheries management plan. There is science that goes into those. There are advisory panel meetings, committee meetings, full council meetings. So I do New England and the Mid-Atlantic. Um, I'm the chair of the Herring Advisory Panel for New England, member of the Habitat Advisory Panel for the Mid. I'm on Squid Mackerel Butterfish Advisory Panel, Ecosystems Ocean Planning Advisory Panel. 
I'm also the chair of the Menhaden Advisory Panel for the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, which is a um, like a coastwide state group that manages state fisheries. But I also deal with congressional legislation, um, Coast Guard regulations if they're applicable, any kind of state fisheries or other regulation that impacts fisheries, but especially growing more and more now um, offshore wind. So offshore wind, you know, my job is to pay attention to, follow and engage in anything that impacts the ability of our vessels to operate. And so as such, offshore wind is is a very, very big component of that. Okay. I'm sitting here, my head's, you know, I'm I'm usually pretty quick on my feet, but my head just exploded with your job description. <laughs> I mean, I my look. head explodes too. <laughs> um, I'm sitting here trying to think, okay, it's either coffee or Red Bull or you never sleep, uh, or, you know, what do you, how, how do you manage all of this? Do you have a team of about a thousand people to start running around with what you're doing? No, and that's that's really where we in the fishing industry are at a disadvantage. You right. know, when it comes to federal fisheries management process, you know, people expect it, people, it to be participatory. And right. it's like, you know, I'm one person trying to follow all these things. The federal government has, you know, staffers for, for each thing. When I deal with BOEM for offshore wind, you know, they've got a plethora, they've got teams of people doing, you know, following things that I'm expected to follow all at once. You know, I've complained to them this year multiple times of they keep throwing that, you know, draft environmental impact statements that are thousands of pages long for multiple projects at once. And I'm like, people during fisheries management council meetings, and I'm like, "I I can't follow every single detail all the time. And it's, you know, I quite frankly believe that's part of the plan just to overwhelm us. So um, that gets me mad, which then that's why that's why I keep going. <laughs> and, and so you're not able as a industry liaison leader, uh, you're not able to get your word out. Are you being silenced or shadow banned or they don't want to hear the environmentalists don't want to talk to you, correct? Some do, some don't. Um, part okay. of the problem with the environmental industry, because it's an industry is that, you know, a lot of them have received money from offshore wind companies. Um, oh. and that's hush money. Some have been critical. Um, I will say there's groups like Clean Ocean Action in New Jersey. They are very vocal. Um, okay. I have seen some um, statements from other environmental groups supporting certain measures. Nice. Um, you know, but a lot of them are very, very careful. And, you know, what's interesting is the tension between, you know, I go to fisheries management council meetings all the time. I'm outnumbered by NGOs, like, you know, 10 to one sometimes. Right. But here with this, it's like, this is the most environmentally destructive, you know, ocean industrialization that we've ever seen in the history of the United States. And, and kind of exactly to your point, where are they? Um, right now there are uh, Orsted, a Danish owned, uh, Danish government-owned wind company is pile driving right now on Cox's Ledge off of Rhode Island, which is like a habitat area of particular concern. And it's like this habitat type that's been, you know, it's an ecologically important area. And they're they're pile driving on it right now, which is beyond comprehension to me. Okay, pile driving. Uh, that I know, uh, you know, you're sitting there. Sonar is how so many animals in the ocean uh, have to survive. And so we're sitting here talking about this. Whales are showing up by the hunt. I, I, we've had a hundred or more, uh, I mean, two or three hundred, whatever the number is. It's horrific this year. 
We've had porpoises. We've had it's hurt your your fishing. It's dangerous for your boats. Have you had any boats have accidents out there? Is that clear of men? There have not been accidents to date, but the turbines are not up yet. They're they're becoming up, right? Like they're they're pile driving as well. Uh, and actually, it, my company is the lead plaintiff on a lawsuit against Vineyard Wind, which is the first federally permitted offshore wind um, farm in the country. And that's being we're being represented by Texas Public Policy Foundation on that. And we're actually nice. in an appeal right now at the Court of Appeals to try to get them to stop construction until you know, until the case can fully be heard, because right now they're just destroying fishing grounds. And what the what the real danger is going to be by these, because I think people are people look at windmills on land and they think that they're going to be this that big. The ones that see are going to be a thousand feet tall. Each blade will be larger than a football field. And we're talking thousands of them being planned. So right now, Vineyard Wind is part of a lease area off of Rhode Island and Massachusetts that is bigger than the state of Rhode Island. Like it's bigger than a state, smallest state, but still like it's a state, right? right. Um, and windmills cause radar interference. They cause radar interference of all kinds, defense radar, air terminal radar, all kinds of radar, but um, you know, weather radar, but especially for us, importantly, marine vessel radar. So our boats are working at night in the fog and inclement weather, and we're going to lose the ability essentially to see. And that's a huge, huge safety implication. And when these things are up, um, we're definitely not going to be able to operate our gear in a wind farm. Um, And I can go into that in a little bit. But as far as the radar issue, it's not going to be safe even to transit. And the danger of that, you know, I started screaming to the Coast Guard about this years ago. And I said, do a modeling analysis for this you know, for this type of thing, right? For this many turbines, the size of turbines, there was data from the UK that showed it was a problem, but it was all all done on smaller turbines. And I'm like, these are much bigger. You guys need to do something updated. They refused to do it. Um, the, the navigational study that was done refused to look at radar impacts and the Coast Guard guy in charge of it, um, who wrote it or was in charge of writing it, you know, the report came out and said, we're unaware of any radar impacts or, or um, scientific studies documenting radar impacts as a result of offshore wind turbines. And I was like, bull crap. The Coast Guard did an analysis for Cape Wind in 2006, a modeling analysis. And I was asking for an updated version of that. But the guy who was in charge of that report for the Coast Guard went before the report was finalized to become the director of marine affairs for an offshore wind company holding leases in the area. Um, and it was never it was never redone. So I screamed and yelled about it. I went to Coast Guard headquarters about it. The people at Coast Guard headquarters, the chief of the Office of Navigation Systems for the United States of America, had no idea that there was radar interference. So I kept pushing the issue, pushing the issue. Meanwhile, projects are getting approved at this point. And then after they're approved, the National Academy of Sciences came out and wrote an entire report saying, oh, yeah, this is like a huge problem. There's no immediate solutions. It's going to have, you know, all these impacts. And they actually quoted part of my comment submission to the Coast Guard. And I'm like, every single thing that I said was completely justified. And I backed it up with all kinds of, you know, data and nobody wanted to listen. So now we have projects right now that are approved by the United States government and we do not have a solution to mariner safety and radar interference. No wonder you're you're passionate about the way you describe this. I mean, I can see your chest getting riled up. Uh, You would be the best 
mama lion on the African plane protecting her cubs. I, I just, I love your passion for trying to get this horrible word out. And it's on deaf ears because of the money coming in from the renewable market. Is that what I heard? There's there's quite a bit, you know, the, the wind companies are terrified of bad press. There's a lot of cover-ups going on right now, even by the current administration. Um, You know, I have been on various um, Fox News programs. I've been on um, Newsmax programs. Um, I've been on various podcasts. Um, and, And people are paying attention, as you said, to the whale issue. But what's very interesting is, you know, I've been screaming from the highest rooftop, like for years, about things like mariner safety, radar interference, defense radar interference. I didn't know. Right, because nobody knows. And now what has happened is that because of the dead whales, information is starting to surface. Now the word is starting to get out. And it took all these dead whales washing up to kind of get people's attention. And what's funny with that is... As soon as the whales started washing up, nobody's ever seen this before. Like these are not just, you know, like small animals. Like these are like 45 foot humpback whales. Like they're big. Um, And they're, and nobody's ever seen this before. They just keep on washing up shockingly in coincidence with the offshore wind farm seismic geotechnical surveys. And it's not, those surveys are not as strong as oil and gas seismic, but they are seismic and they have an impact on on whales because the wind companies have to get incidental take authorizations from NOAA to be able to do the surveys. And those incidental take authorizations allow for temporary deafening of whales and particularly large baleen whales. And the problem is NOAA's like, well, we're going to give you these permits to do this. We're going to give you these authorizations to do this. But for the large baleen whales, we really don't have any science or hearing data on them. So they're kind of like taking a wild guess. And then they say, well, but if you exceed this many takes, then, you know, you can have this permit revoked. But there's nobody monitoring how many takes there are. They don't have the data to be able to say, well, this is either going to cause temporary or permanent deafness. They expect it to cause temporary deafness. And they say, well, if you keep on getting exposed to temporary deafness, you can become permanently deaf. And then the whale's ability to navigate, to forage, to, to communicate, obviously, is compromised. They're going to be easy ship strikes. So these permits are being issued, right? But then right. you have a NOAA spokesperson come on TV and say, no, 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 there's definitely nothing to see here. There's definitely no connection between the two. And I'm like, you're issuing like these incidental harassment authorizations that allow for deafness. And how can you say that there's no connection? And it's because nobody wants there to be a connection because then it would have to be shut down. So what you're seeing is a coincidence in time and space, you know, and then all of a sudden something happening that nobody's ever seen before. If this was any other industry, it'd be shut down immediately and there would be investigations. Um, You know, literally, I was at a fisheries management council meeting like two, three weeks ago. I'm sitting there trying to pay attention to fisheries science. Right. And I've got a guy who's offshore on his boat and he's texting me. He's like, here's another dead whale. And he's sending me pictures. And I'm like, can you give me your coordinate and a picture of your chart plotter so I know where you're at? So he does. And I'm looking at it. So then I'm going on a marine website and I'm watching a survey boat for Vineyard Wind Mid-Atlantic that's surveying right in the same area. And it only got there like one or two days prior. So now magically we've got another one. We've got this going on in the same time and space. Then within five days of that happening, two more washed up. And it was, and then, oh, here's, here's another survey boat, you know, and, and if you actually look at 
the overlap in time and space of these occurrences, there is definitely a connection. And what I see in the permit or the incidental take authorizations that get issued is this. They say for North Atlantic right whales, which are critically endangered, large baleen whales, they say you have to have a shutdown zone of 500 meters. So if you see a right whale within 500 meters of the survey equipment, you have to shut down. Okay. They say they for all other whales, all, for all the other kinds of whales. Now, keep it in mind, the East Coast is a super highway for migrating large baleen whales of many kinds. So humpbacks, fin whales, say whales, minke whales, right whales. So all these whales are going here all the time. And the, the incidental take authorizations say, if you see a whale, any other whale other than a right whale within 100 meters of the survey equipment, you have to shut it down. Okay. But then you actually get into the weeds of the documents and they say, well, these, this equipment is expected to cause impacts to whales. I've seen different ones on different authorizations. So it's kind of hard to tell. One of them says 141 meters from the equipment. One of them says 178 meters from the equipment, but they're only required to shut down if they see a whale within a hundred meters. So I'm like, this doesn't even make sense. None of it even makes sense. But like I said, you know, the Biden administration wants windmills. And so they're saying there's nothing to see here, nothing to see here. But then you actually like read the documents and you go, this is very sketchy. Hmm. We have, and selfishly, I'm, I'm sitting here dumbfounded. Uh, and I have not, I've only heard dead whales on the beach because of wind. This information is nutty. And I, I, I just appreciate you, Megan, for everything you're doing out there. Because that super highway of the uh, whales because when they strain algae, they strain everything else, they poop, and that just creates more fish food. When I was talking to uh, Patrick uh, Moore from, you know, the founder of Greenpeace, he was saying how important rules are. This is important for your fishery in order to get everything uh, going on. So, okay, do you have screenshots of the whale dying, you know, the dead whale, and that that it, where that chart was with that boat. Those two things I can write and just drop into this article and say there is a cause and effect relationship between these two. It's not just, oh, by the way, timing, Megan, as you said, there's a cause and effect for more than one. That's justifiable. And you nailed it earlier. If this is an oil and gas seismic or it's oil and gas, we're facing not being able to drill because they're lizards with zillions of them across the, the West and they're shutting down drilling because of a small lizard that is not very important except to the neighborhood snake. Right, right. And and you know what's crazy is I started to look a little bit deeper into um, you know, one of the, the more recent documents and I found out that so for whales, okay, they NOAA does stock assessments on whales and they have a number called What's a stock assessment for? Okay. A stock assessment is they look at science and determine how many whales are out there. Right? Okay. They do it for fish too. They have multiple surveys and they tell you this is the, you know, they estimate the biomass, the number of fish that are in the okay. ocean. This is for fisheries. That's how you set quotas. For whales, it's for protection measures, essentially. Got it. Okay. Um, and for humpback whales, they have the PBR number, which is PBR stands for potential biological removal. So it is the allowable number of of like whale deaths attributable to humans that can occur in a year without the population suffering, like the actual whole population, right? So for this year, 
the PBR for humpback whales is 22. But since December, we are already at, I believe, 39 humpbacks dead. So you've almost doubled right? You've almost doubled it. And still, nobody's going, hmm, maybe we should look at this, you know? And it's, again, it's, it's, it's truly unbelievable. And yeah, if it was any other industry, it would be shut down. And I know that legislators in New Jersey, there was like a coalition of, I believe, 30 mayors, coastal mayors of New Jersey. They've had right. two of their congressmen and they've been calling for a moratorium um, on all offshore wind activity until this can be investigated. But, you know, nobody in Washington is heeding those calls. I, I'm getting airsick. I'm just telling you right now, I, my trade table is up. I'm in a crash position. I'm about to go into my fetal position for the whales. I mean, and the fisheries, and the jobs, and uh, the mariners. Perfect. I mean, yeah. And if you think about that's what it's doing to whales. You know, think about what it's doing to everything else in the ocean. Purposes, everything. Think about, well, even, you know, finfish, shellfish. Whatever other kinds of things, plankton, larvae, fish larvae, eggs, you know, that can't get out of the way. I have heard various fishermen say, you know, if they've had, um, what do you call it, pots, you know, say conch pots or this or that in the areas where the surveys are, you know, they come up dead. Or, you know, if if there's a survey vessel in the area, the fish leave, they don't come back for, you know, days. So, you know, you hear all these different, you know, reports from people. And obviously there's going to be an impact, right? Like there's going to be an impact. Um, But I think what's really just unbelievable to me is that for these surveys, there's no real permit for them. There's not really oversight of them. There's not. um, It's it's a very, a very loosey goosey process for, for a wind developer to be able to go do one of these surveys. And as I have you know, gotten more um, familiar with the various processes, the difference between how oil and gas processes go as opposed to offshore wind processes are very different, even though they're overseen by the same federal agency. And that is something that is very questionable to me. Energy hypocrisy and environmental hypocrisy drives me nuts. It is, uh, it is so sad. Um, what can people do is um, they need to know. We got Megan, we got to get your word out there. And they got to contact the politicians. But if the uh, wind lobbyists are throwing money at this, what are some of the other ideas that you can do or other things that are available in your, you know, your quiver in order to go try to help the whales, help the marine? Because that ecological uh, in, in thing is critical. And we always hear you can't break any one piece of that ecological uh, cycle of life without hurting the whole thing, right? Right. Yeah, it's the ocean industrialization, um, just the square mileage of what is being looked at just for the East Coast is absolutely and utterly horrifying, you know, you're talking about thousands of square miles of an industrial power plant. And what it does is it also takes the wind out of the air. And what causes ocean mixing and ocean upwelling and nutrient, you know, mixing in the ocean, which is what produces, you know, plankton and all kinds of like activity, windmills take that out of the air. And there's actually been studies that show that offshore wind farms increase local warming that mimics climate change because it's sucking the wind out of the air and that these wind wakes 
um, this wind wake effect can continue for like 100 kilometers downwind of the wind farm, and it can cause up to a 10% drop in primary productivity. So that is obviously a huge problem for anybody, you know, like us who make, you know, we make our living on a healthy ocean. So if the ocean's health is going to be damaged by this, like we're going to be the people that pay. But also, you know, if anybody wants to eat U.S. wild caught seafood, then the consumer pays. But I mean, in general, like this is our natural resources for the United States of America. And once it's destroyed, you can't get it back, you know. And and that's what's really, really scary to me is it makes me want to throw up to think of thousands of square miles of what is now like a pristine ocean just being turned into an industrial power plant. And I don't think that if, that if people actually knew what was happening, they would stand for it. And you know, to your point um, of contacting politicians and things like that, you know, I know that there are a lot of groups beginning to form, coastal group. They are, you know, getting the word out. They're showing up at their state houses. They're putting out press releases. Some of them are filing lawsuits. I think, right. you know, organization on that kind of level is going to be very important. And I think also, you know, if there are people, you know, in the energy world as well, I think what you know, one thing that I noticed, I remember watching in the state of Virginia was that the state of Virginia's their like public utilities board was going to require a performance guarantee from the developer. Now, the developer had said, we're going to produce, you know, 40, I think it was like 41 percent or 42 percent of name plate capacity. And usually offshore wind produces about 35 percent. So they said, we're going to do this. So the public utilities board said, OK, well, then we want a performance guarantee of 41 or 42 percent, whatever it was. And, um, you know, anything if you guys have a shortfall, like the ratepayers are not going to pay the cost of that. Well, right. then the developer started saying, oh, no, 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 we can't. Then we can't do it. It makes the project unfeasible. And I think, you know, that just goes to show you know, these companies are not being honest. They are, you know, leading people down a rabbit hole kind of a thing. They're, the, the electricity obviously is not going to be reliable because guess what? The wind doesn't always blow. Um, and that is going to have to be backed up by conventional power sources, usually natural gas because it's quick firing and you have to be able to like fire up fast when, when the wind drops out, right? Oh, right. Now, really what you're doing is you're paying two electric bills. So... Because you've got to keep that natural gas plant going 100% right. of the time because the wind is very variable. So right. you're also paying for the wind and you're paying for, for the natural gas. So now you pay two times, right? This is really one of the problems. And, you know, if there's anybody listening who is in the energy regulatory world, start putting performance guarantees. You know, start saying and, uh, that. Then you do this. You know, um, I, I still keep yelling at um, Meredith Angwin. Her book, Shorting the Grid, really helped me. I've, I thoroughly enjoyed my two podcasts with her. But it's the balancing authorities. And I did not know on the grid that you have, you just made it, Megan. And I'm over here going, <laughs> and that was, you understand you got to have that uh, on-demand power instantly. And a nuke is the best. I mean, it's always there you know, whatever it is. And then you've got the natural gas and the coal that can fire up within a very quick amount of time. And then you have renewable that is like ho-hum, you know, when I ever get around to it. And that makes it tough for the balancing authority to pay for um, standby power. You got to pay them even if they're not producing power. That's why the, the battery storage folks are now being able to say, oh, we can afford to do that. Because even if that silly thing is sitting there, getting power from the wind 
they can sit there in standby mode and still make money. It's hard to sit there in standby mode if you're either solar or wind to get that money from the balancing authority. So uh, you were spot on on everything you were just saying on that grid. How cool is that? But how lying is that? I mean, is it okay to lie now just for money? Well, I think that's always how it's worked. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> I can't find, but um, yeah, it's it's very disingenuous. And you know what's interesting is I read the Boehm documents and I look at them and they're basing, you know, a lot of them say the offshore wind farms are not going to have any measurable impact on climate change, right? But then they'll make these like very like qualitative statements, like not quantitative, you can't measure this, right? But very qualitative, like, well, you know, but it probably will be good because it means fossil fuel plants will be retired. And I'm like, that's so disingenuous. That's not how the grid works. That's not real life. That is not true. And so they're basing this on, well, it will sort of, might be good for the planet. It maybe will because these other power plants will be retired. And I'm like, no, they won't be. And you're going to need, you know, more eventually. And it's, it's, it is very disingenuous. And, um, you know, it's interesting if you, if you take a look at Germany, okay. Germany has, you know, more renewables because they went on their whole energy Vinda thing. And like this past winter, I think it was this past winter in the fall, I started seeing some articles, like they were preparing for blackout because they didn't have any natural gas, right. Cause the Ukraine right. war. And then they're trying to rely on their renewables. Meanwhile, they're trying like as fast as they can to fire off coal plants because they need the coal because they need something to run. But they literally, I saw one article where they were showing like people how to try to keep their houses warm in case of a blackout and how to cook inside their house over an open flame. And I'm like, this is not a third world country. Like these people are not like... They make some of the best automobiles in the world. They're really good engineers. And here they are telling their population, well, you know what? In case you run out of energy, like let's cook over open flames inside. And here's how you can do it. That's bizarre. And it's all because they were like, we want to do this as a policy decision. And people get votes from policy decisions. And there's a lot of, you know, ramp up in, you know, media and this, that, and the other thing. And then people are like, ooh, 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 yeah, let's do this because it's good for the planet. And then they get votes. And the general public is not informed because nobody is informing them of the realities of how energy work. And, you know, people who do know it are going, well, like, this is ridiculous. But, right. you know, but this whole people are being sold a lie. And I think, you know, the hype and the propaganda over, you know, climate change and various things, it's like people need to understand this isn't even going to like impact that. In fact, it'll probably make it worse. And right. and they're not being told that. And, and you know, honestly, you know, most people, I don't care, you know, what spectrum of, of politics they're I mean. Like as far as us, we're we're in the fishing industry. We rely on healthy natural resources. You know, we're like the last people that want to see the environment damaged. And and and, and, and fishermen, fish hatcheries, hunters. It's all, you know, everybody's saying, oh, the hunters are going to kill Bambi, but they actually very much uh, call the herds and deer. And if you don't do that, they starve because they eat all the food. Uh, uh, and, and so it's healthier with managed wildlife 
And I've never seen anything so cool as thick hatcheries and everything else. I didn't realize it was because it was so heavily regulated. Every fisherman wants his spots to remain healthy. There's nothing unhealthy. Now, whaling back in the, in when Japanese uh, were just killing every whale on the planet and uh, Patrick Moore went out and helped stop it with the early days of Greenpeace. Um, you know, that wasn't healthy. Uh, that was some of the fishing that didn't do good. But every U.S. folks, I don't know anybody. I have not heard of anything except great things, Megan. I think it's from folks like you having to follow all of that kind of stuff. Do you know Craig Rucker? Uh, he's the president over at CFAX. Yep, uh, I do. I, I just did his podcast a little while ago, and they're about to re uh, release it as well. I liked him. He was out on a boat trying to, you know, going, you guys are stinky uh, on this uh, wind farm stuff. So uh, I'm trying to get his podcast out as well, too. Yep. And you know, it's, you know, it's really ironic. And, and it's like people, because, you know, everybody wants things that are good for the environment. When they're told something's good for the environment, they're told, oh, wind farms are good for the environment. They typically are like, oh, okay, well, then I'll support that. And the problem is that they're not getting the real information. And it's this, you know, it's like a policy grab. But what's ironic about the whale right. too, is that so back in the 1800s, okay, whaling was a big thing, right? Right. Right. Whale oil. New Bedford, Massachusetts was called the city that lit the world because they had so many whaling ships that went out and they caught whales, killed them, got the oil and they sent whale oil literally around the world. And that is what powered like early electric, quote unquote, like street lamps. Right. Right. And that's why New Bedford was one of the wealthiest cities in the world was because the whale oil and New England was the capital of the of the whaling industry worldwide. So now. Right. Back then, it was kill the whales, essentially, for energy. Right. We right. needed energy. Kill the whales for energy. I'm pretty sure that's why oil is still measured in barrels, because it was how many barrels of whale oil can you fit on a ship? That was the whole thing. Barrels of whale oil. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's still a relic in the energy industry today, which is funny. So back in the day, <laughs> it makes sense. Makes sense. Right. So killing whales for energy. And then we realized, wow, that's a bad idea, right? Then oil was discovered, like like fossil fuel oil, right? So whaling stopped. Plus, the whales were getting, you know, wiped out, right? This was bad. So we switched over to to what we now call oil, you know, and and whaling stopped. And you know, since then, you know, we've been trying to protect the whales and you know, bring back whale right. populations, all these kinds of things. Well, now whales are dying again, and it's because of energy again, and they're whale habitat again it's like now we're now all of a sudden people are again willing to sacrifice whales you know to cry whaling right you talk to anybody and they're like no 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 whaling's bad whaling's bad whaling's bad but now it's just it's switching forms it's almost like you know there's nothing new under the sun right it's like the same situation just modernized and here we are I absolutely love the way you articulated that. That was cool. I read an article the other day. Oil saved the whales the first time. Patrick Moore saved them the second time with Greenpeace, you know, going out and having harpoon ships uh, throwing at them. Who's going to save them the third time from the windmills? And, and is it going to be nuclear? Is it going to be natural gas? But the way you articulated that was far better than what I was saying. 
I, 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 can I steal that? Because that was great. Energy. People kill over energy. Yep. Yep. Wow. You know, it just goes to show you kind of like to to go back to your first point, like where the hypocrisy is. It's like, so you were not okay. People are not okay with killing whales for energy back in the day. But like all of a sudden, like now it's okay because it's a different kind of it, you know? No. And it's it's not, it's it's very disingenuous. Now, was it the sperm whale sack that was the number one reason for oil? That was the spermaceti. That was an important thing. They used that for other stuff, but it was the blubber for oil. Um, uh, okay. They would, they would get... They would harpoon the whales, they'd bring them up on deck, or they'd cut the blubber off of them, and then they'd put them in big cauldrons and cook it and melt it down into oil and then put it in barrels. Um, and so they started out with right whales. Right whales are the critically endangered ones in the Northeast, and they were called the right whales because they were the right ones to get, and they were easy to get, and they lived off in wow. Antarctica, which where there is where they're putting windmills now. And then, you know, then it went to sperm whales, and people went further and stuff like that, but it's like... You know, I saw a recent article and it was talking about how because of climate change, the right whales were repatriating their old habitat around Nantucket. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense, but whatever. And so here they are. They're all around Nantucket, but that's where windmills are getting put in right now. So it's like, okay, like you're going to destroy their habitat with windmills. But whaling was bad. Got it. Nice. Well, you know, uh, BlackRock, uh, from a financial, I think the only way we're going to save the whales is because of financial issues. Either the politicians need to quit getting paid by the uh, lobbyists. Uh, BlackRock is one of the largest uh, financial uh, holders of everything in the world. They lost $1.7 trillion in the first half of last year. Uh, Larry Fink, the head schmo, uh, just put out a statement that they are only now taking now 94% of ESG projects, and that's all they're funding now because of the inability for them to be profitable. There's more, and the only way wind farms can be profitable, I, I went to, Megan, I went to Oklahoma State, so I can barely read and I can barely write. I, I, I love my, my school, but I'm, I find that Eight years is the maximum of a monetary ability for sustainability for a wind farm because the tax subsidies start running out. The maintenance starts rolling in in this uh, hypocrisy that these farms can last 30 years is bull hockey. There's absolutely no way. So why, when the wind farms are becoming carbon net zero, at the end of uh, 10 years, and they're dying, the wind farms are not sustainable at eight years. And I nobody's challenged me on my numbers. I throw it out there and say, give me some new numbers that will contradict mine, and I'm hearing one person send them in. And I respect the numbers and everything else, and they kind of validated mine. So... You know, you sit back and go, you, your messaging is being backed up by the ESG hypocrisy from the world's biggest investor. And I think it's going to be a combination of nuclear, natural gas, the citizens getting upset by the, the uh, historical electrical energy crisis. So I think it's going to be a groundswelling of people like you 
educating people in order to get that groundswell. Did I analyze that correctly or am I smoking um, whale hockey? No, I, I think you're right. You know, I tell people all the time, I'm like, you know, if your energy decisions are going to be based off of, you know, a metric of, well, people don't want carbon. I'm like, the only carbon free energy is nuclear. And that's, right. that's just the way it is. And, you know, and then people will say, well, you know, we also, you know, we don't like that because it has radioactive. Well, all of these offshore wind turbines, they have neodymium and dysprosium rare earth minerals in them for like magnets and stuff. Those are all coming from China. And for every one ton of rare earth minerals you mine, you create one ton of radioactive waste. So how much nuclear radioactive waste do you, are you creating essentially wow. the windmills? Compared to if you actually had a nuclear reactor that was like producing real energy that was actually reliable um, and, and you know, you can put in a fairly small footprint and not destroy the ocean. And, and those are the kinds of questions that people really need to start, you know, looking at because, you know, offshore wind, like you said, the numbers don't don't work. I don't know if you're familiar with um, Jonathan Lesser. He is a um, he's a Manhattan Institute fellow. He did. He was in energy for like a long time. He worked for like utilities right. and he has an energy consulting firm. Really smart guy. Um, and I've seen some articles that he's done and he said offshore wind turbines, they lose four and a half percent efficiency every year because, you know, it's salt. It's the ocean. It's deteriorating it. And right. so basically, by the time, like you said, by the time you get like 10 years down the line, you've already lost about 50 percent efficiency and they don't have that much efficiency to begin with. Right. And then the maintenance costs mount and all these other things. Wow. And it just doesn't like it doesn't pay. It doesn't work. And, you know, people, it's funny. Yep. They'll talk a lot about the Block Island wind farm. Oh, like, ooh, the Block Island wind farm, the first wind farm in America off of Block Island, right? Rhode Island. And I'm like, I live in Rhode Island. Let me tell you about the Block Island. Okay. They went online in 2016. Right. By 2017, they knew they had problems with the cables. By 2018, both cables were exposed. They didn't get them both reburied until 2022. They had the beaches torn up. They had people floating in inner tubes over like 10,000 volt cables, you know, stuff like that. And like the, the dunes are torn up, the beaches are torn up. They're putting in, um, they're having to like HDD to put in like things to run the cables through, all this kind of stuff. Then a couple of years ago, they were all offline except for one because they had stress fractures in the rotors. They have to always like refiberglass the leading edge of the blades. This summer, one of them's out for like three months because they had to repair that one. I mean, it's it's a joke. And that's only six, or that's only five of, the, of them. There's six megawatt turbines. There's five of them. Wait till, you, you know, these people want like, you know, mm -hmm. 3,500 and they want them a thousand feet high and each blade's longer than a football field. Imagine the maintenance on that. And, and it's in the ocean and it's like, they're not going to, there's not even enough vessels to service these things at the, like something that size. Um, and it, it it's, it's just, it's a joke. Like if, if this is what people really think is going to produce energy, they're terribly, terribly wrong. It's a religion or a cult, whichever way you want to look at it. Sorry. You know, Megan, I, I want to help get the word out for you. 
Um, I think that uh, I'm being silenced, and I know for a fact that my news channel uh, is shut down. We get between 22,000 and 60,000 people a day on our news uh, energynewsbeat.co and uh, or dot com and uh, we get them around the world the podcast is now in over a hundred countries around the world and if we didn't have these kind of channels I hear all the time hey thanks for sharing the true word and I, I absolutely love I love wind I love solar I love the idea of going to renewable energy but nobody from the renewable side wind solar are taking in sustainable in as far as being able to be recycled. Can't do those blades recycled. You can't, uh, and when you try to recycle the solar and all that other kind of stuff, it is poisonous, and we're we're shipping all of ours to Africa and other areas so we can pollute other countries. America stinks uh, with that. And it is not sustainable. So I'm not a fan of non-sustainable because of the energy poverty going to humanity. So that whole trail of hypocrisy, I learned a lot from you, Megan. And I am so appreciative of our time together on this. If you can give me any reports that you have, uh, any of those screenshots, I want to get the word out there in news articles and help get the word out for you. Um, because the education, and I see more and more people going to the uh, non-traditional media because the media is like politicians. I don't like any politician. So I vote we get them all out. And start over with people that are not politicians. So it's just my unprofessional opinion. Sorry. But what do you see coming around the corner for C-Freeze and you, Megan? What are your tough issues coming around the corner? Besides everything we talked about. <laughs> it's uh, it's really more, more offshore wind farm approvals. Um, the current administration has made it very clear. They want to approve as many as they can, as quick as they can before 2024. We just had one approved South Rhode Island uh, a day or two ago, like about 100 turbines. There's another one in the pipeline that's 84 turbines. There's another one. I can't even remember how many turbines it is. I don't even think that they've come to a concrete number yet. And it's, you know, trying to keep track of all of them, comment on them, be on the record. And hopefully, hopefully we win our lawsuit, you know, wow. which we will keep appealing that. We will appeal it all the way to the Supreme Court. And nice. you know, see where we go. And you know, I'm I sincerely hope that there are other people who are going to start challenging some of the other ones that are receiving approval because you know that's you don't want to end up in court, right? Like that's your last resort, but that's the only place we can go because there's nobody, nobody listening, um, and there's nobody acting. You know, to hold offshore wind accountable, the same as every other U.S. entity is held accountable, um, and that's very unfortunate. Megan, as uh, man, I I'm just want to hang with you. I mean, I want to try to you know do the broken mind melt and get all the knowledge out of you. I'll leave the personal stuff alone, but I I'm going to have to borrow Spock's technique because you got facts, you got data, you got everything, and I just appreciate all that. How do people contact you through Sea Freeze or you're not on LinkedIn? So how do people? How does the media get a hold of you? Well. Um, they can get a hold of me through my Seafreeze email, okay. Megan at SeafreezeLTD.com. Okay. Um, I am on Facebook. I will say I'm on Facebook. 
I refuse to have any more like social media, even like LinkedIn. I'm like, that's like social media for professionals. I can't even handle one more thing. So that's why I don't have it. How fun. Um, well, uh, Megan, thank you so much. And I want to have you back again. And I'm looking forward to you being interviewed on, I believe, the Crude Truth and David Blackman's as well. And we got to get the word out on on everything. Yep. So if I hear of other channels, I'm going to make sure that your, um, your contact information is out there. So thank, thank you, you so much. much. I appreciate I, it, too.